Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In the Psychologist's Chair with host Dr. Raymond Hamden. Our program will feature global guests joining Dr. Hamden for a psychological interview. And through their experiences, you will explore the human depth of understanding their purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Raymond Hamden. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden, and you're in the psychologist's chair. And we are talking with Dr. Eric Hoagland, who is a Ph.D. in International Relations, Middle East Studies, from Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. After many years of experience working for different groups, his forte is not just his academic ability, but it's also his writing skills. A new thinker, a new writer, today he's in Sweden. Welcome to the show, Dr. Eric Hoagland. Thank you, Ray. It's nice to have you on here, Eric. Now, you're currently in Sweden. That's correct. How did a young man from the city of Waterville in the state of Maine, who I happened to meet in Washington, D.C., end up in Sweden? Well, uh, the University of Lund uh, here in Sweden uh, has just established a new uh, Center for Middle East Studies, and they hired me as their senior professor because of a uh, I guess my reputation as a scholar who's been doing innovative things on the Middle East for the past uh, oh, many, many years. Yes, it's been several decades, and you've been doing some wonderful work, not only for the Middle East in general as Arabs, but also your expertise at one time was Iran. That still is one of my expertise, and I just have my new book on Iran called Gender and Contemporary Iran, which just came off the press uh, at the end of May. And how many languages in which it will be published? Right now, it's only published in English. You have a lot of time, which I can't understand how you end up with so much time, to be the editor of Middle East Critique, as well as writing this new book. The new journal. Is that actually new, Middle East Critique, that you've developed, or is it something that existed and you took over the editorship? Uh, Middle East Critique was founded in 1992, and it had a collective uh, uh, editorship initially, and I was involved in the founding of it. Uh, uh, it was founded by a group of colleagues who taught in Minnesota at the different uh, uh, liberal arts colleges in St. Paul. St. Paul has several different uh, liberal arts colleges, and each one gave a contribution seed money to help us start the journal. And uh, and we decided uh, in 1994 it was really best to have a full-time editor. And as of January 95, I have been that full-time editor. Uh, and since 2002, uh, we have been published by. Taylor and Francis, uh, which is located in Great Britain and is the largest single publisher of scholarly journals in the world with something like 1,500 titles, more than half of which are in engineering, science, medicine, and the others in social sciences. And your specific press happens to be Rutledge Press, which is part of Taylor and Francis. Rutledge is uh, the mostly the... Uh, book publishing division of Taylor and Francis, correct. Middle East Critique promotes an academic and critical examination of the history and contemporary political, social, economic, and cultural aspects of 
Middle Eastern countries. Eric, how did you move around from being an expert on Iran and maintaining that into the Arab world? Well, my specialty is Middle East politics, uh, and uh, and uh, so I am a an expert on Middle East politics. And the area where I do most of my research is in Iran, although I've also done field research in Turkey and in in several Arab countries. But my primary interest is Iran. Now, Middle East is actually a term that's used for what kind of setting? It's it's not recognized by the UN, is it? Is it considered one of the areas of the United Nations? Or is it uh, a military kind of identification of the area? Middle East is a term which comes out of the 18th century and is a term that Europeans use to refer to the whole area in Asia, which is to the east of Europe. So there was initially a Near East, which would have been the Mediterranean area, the Arab North Africa and the Mediterranean coast of the Ottoman Empire at the time. The Middle East would have been uh, Afghanistan, what we now know as India or Pakistan. And then there was the Far East, which would have been China, Japan, Korea. Uh, The Far East still survives and uh, the Middle East still survives, but the Near East does not survive. And so the Near East and the Middle East have been conflated into one. Uh, And it's a widely used term by many countries. It's even used in the United Nations uh, for areas. Uh, And it's used in our State Department and others. And it basically refers to the area extended from the Arab-speaking North Africa to Iran. Now, you're quite fluent in the Middle East studies. And, of course, your specialty is Iran and and the Arab world at large. How did a guy from Maine become interested in the Middle East? Well, I started out, well, first, uh, I am, of course, an Arab-American. I'm half Arab-Lebanese, and I grew up in a Lebanese community. Waterville, Maine has one of the largest such communities in the country, and it goes back to the Ottoman period when the first uh, uh, Arabic-speaking communities were established in the U.S., and so I had an uh, interest in in the Middle East uh, for family reasons. And after I graduated from college, I went joined the Peace Corps and I was sent to Iran and I just fell in love with the culture there. And after that, I just decided I wanted to major in Middle East studies when I got a degree in it. And ever since then, I've been teaching and doing research and working on the Middle East. That's some 40 years now. At one time, you were at the uh, American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee in Washington, D.C., and you were doing some amazing work with publications there. How long were you with ADC? Uh, I was there for about three years. That was a group established by the former Senator Aberes, and I was hired to be the director of the research institute that they had. And one of the functions uh, of that research institute that I saw was to really document in a scholarly way the history of the first Arab-American communities in the U.S. Uh, And we published a number of studies dealing with that. We sent out a scholars to interview some of the surviving uh, people who were then in their 80s of the immigrants who had come prior to World War I. And so we did some of the original studies in places like Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, Newcastle, Pennsylvania, Vicksburg, Mississippi, some, some real original pieces. Uh, some of the people who worked with us uh, then went on to a major conference, which we had in St. Paul, Minnesota in the mid-80s, and that's when my one of my books came out, uh, published by Smithsonian Institution Press, uh, Arabic-speaking immigrants to the United States prior to 1940. And so we have several pieces in there, including my own piece on the community in Waterville, Maine. Uh, and we also, that was, that comes out of my work at ADC, but we also publish a number of uh, 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 books and articles uh, about the Arab communities at ADC. So that was a very important uh, research period, which I think. Uh, 
I hope at least uh, has contributed to documenting this very rich history, which uh, which uh, which nobody had really oral history, which not many people had done before. And I think that uh, we have been able we were successful in preserving uh, this unique uh, these many many unique Arab speaking communities in the U.S. Middle East critique actively engages theoretical and empirical studies and by so doing promotes a critical understanding of the complex nature of ideas, values, social configurations, and materials about the Middle East and its societies. When you travel to the Middle East, where do you primarily go to look at some empirical possibilities as well as uh, the the theoretical studies? Well, I continue to do my own research in Iran, uh, uh, most of my research in Iran is in villages. Uh, uh, that's what most of my research has been. I'm doing a 30-year study right now, a village I had lived in in 1978-79, which coincided with the Iranian Revolution. Uh, and I am dra- documenting the changes in that village uh, since uh, from that period to the present, uh, which is very interesting because it's a time series I've been able, I'm now actually looking at uh, the grandchildren of some of my original informants. Uh, uh, and so I got some very rich data, which I hope uh, I'll be, which I'm planning to put into a book uh, that I'm writing here at Loon uh, to so to so social and economic change in a rural area using the village as a case study, but also comparing it to other areas uh, uh, in Iran, rural areas. And of course, I also look at villages. I've done work on, I've done some study of villages in the Emirates, for example, in Oman, uh, in Lebanon, in Turkey. so I continue that primary interest I have in rural uh, socioeconomic change. A lot of people in America especially have a very misunderstood view of Iran and certainly the majority of the Middle East countries. With these kinds of studies, what is it that people are going to be learning about human beings that are Iranian or Arab, for as a matter of fact? Well, uh, my hope is that they will learn that they're just like uh, other people. Uh, they have the same uh, interests and hopes and aspirations of people in the United States or Europe. Uh, and obviously, uh, one of my whole objectives in life is uh, to uh, try to educate people uh, away from these negative stereotypes they have uh, and a whole idea, a whole intellectual idea behind Middle East critique is is really to critique the existing mainstream literature which posits uh, the uh, the Arab the the Muslim in fact as the other that they're somehow different uh, to really oppose this whole idea a clash of civilizations uh, we don't even accept that they are different I don't accept personally that they are different civilizations haven't lived in there I think people uh, have the same aspirations as their children in America as they do in Iran or Kuwait or the Emirates or any other country I've been in. Uh, uh, and uh, in terms of religiosity, uh, I, you know, I find them the same Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus having the same types of, uh, of faith. They just uh, um, they, uh, do it differently. But in terms of praying and being spiritual, they're the same things, aspirations uh, for education for their children. We're talking with Dr. Eric Hoagland, who's in the psychologist's chair today. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Entrepreneurial Insights is your weekly excursion into the world of business ownership. Presented by Sunbelt Business Brokers, the leading business brokerage and intermediary firm in the world, Entrepreneurial Insights will examine critical issues that impact both existing and prospective business owners. If you own or want to own a small business, listen for Entrepreneurial Insights with John Davies, Pino Boccianello, and Matt Ottaway. Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When we access Zen. 
We live our lives to the fullest. Real-life situations experienced by the program's guests can help you with the challenges in your life. How can you set the perfect balance between your relationships, work life, real-life adventures, and the outside world's news and events? Tune in to Access Zen with your host, Gregory Foster. You can listen Thursdays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. See the world in a way that you never thought possible. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to In the Psychologist's Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info at inthepsychologistchair.info. That email address again is info at inthepsychologistchair.info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden, and today in the psychologist chair is Dr. Eric Hoagland, University of Lund, an American who is a senior professor in Sweden, and he continues his amazing research in the Middle East. He's currently the editor of Middle East Critique, which provides a forum for the interdisciplinary examination of diverse issues based on solid research and critical readings of developments in the Middle East. A lot of people, Dr. Hoagland, have an interesting view of the Middle East. Many of them see the Middle East as an Arab world who are all Muslims, not realizing that there are Jewish Arabs, Christian Arabs, as well as Muslim Arabs. And that's the same for Iran, isn't it? That's correct. Iran has a diverse population. There still has a Jewish population in Iran, as a lot of Armenian Christians in Iran, some Assyrian Christians, Zoroastrians, which was the pre-Islamic religion in Iran. Uh, and even the Muslim population is uh, diverse as Shia Muslims, who are a majority, but also Sunni Muslims, Sufi Muslims. So, uh, Ahli Haq Muslims. Uh, so it's almost country diverse, uh, and Iran certainly is diverse. The villages that you're most interested in, the rural areas, what is the complexion of those communities as far as the politics and the religion in relationship to what we see in the West as the Iranian government? Uh, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, in the villages, you can find people who, uh, uh, who are very religious and take their religious duties seriously. You can find others who are very casual about their religion. You can find even some who will say the equivalent of uh, one of my favorite American folk singers, the late Woody Guthrie, uh, who uh, came down with a debilitating uh, uh muscular disease, and uh, when he was first in the hospital, they asked him his religion, and he said, all or nothing. Uh, <laughs> and you'll even find Iran who will say something like that. So there is this kind of diversity, and I always tell my students that if you ask a a, a, per, a Muslim in Iran, what how do, how, what do they think of their religion? You have a hundred of them, you get a hundred different answers. Uh, so it's it's very diverse, like uh, it is in the United States. If you were asked Christians, you would get many different answers. Uh, uh, so, uh, and, and one of the things I try to counteract is, you know, there's not these monolithic groups out there. There's all kinds of varieties of people who uh, some of them can be very fundamentalists and how they interpret uh, their particular belief, whether it's religious or even a secular belief. Uh, one could even be very fundamentalist, one could be very spiritual, one could be open. There's just all of these different, uh, I would say, the personality of an individual and their beliefs probably, how they express their beliefs are probably intertwine. People whose personalities tend to be open and tolerant, uh, also have views which are open and tolerant. There and certainly are there certainly are, are diversities in all communities, and Iran is certainly no different than any other community that needs to be seen in a fair light. 
And this fair light can also be public. But before it gets there, academia seems to have a very important role in helping society around the world see the true nature of various communities. And Middle East Critique provides a forum for that very kind of examination. How do you do the forum with your publication, Middle East Critique? Well, uh, it's an academic journal, which means that people submit uh, papers and then they circulated for what do we call anonymous peer review. Uh, the person who is reviewing them is a senior scholar in the field with expertise in the general area of the papers at, but they get the paper without the author's name on it and the author never knows who reviews it and they're asked to do a a very thorough review to evaluate the manuscript in terms of uh, the soundness of its research, the originality of the research and the use of sources uh, and what it would contribute, how it uses a theoretical perspective and so forth. Uh, and we usually have two of these peer reviews, uh, and if uh, uh, both of the reviewers uh, give uh, give a positive review and recommend it, then we accept it for publication. Uh, and then I usually have a number of of uh, of uh, articles uh, which have been accepted, and I try to plan each issue so that the diversity of articles that there might be one dealing with culture one dealing with politics, one dealing with sociology, one dealing with economics, uh, and so forth. Sometimes there's more than one on one topic, but I always try to have, as much as possible, this diversity of, of perspectives as a way of looking at uh, looking at it. And because of that, uh, we are one of the few pieces, places where, where people can really uh, present like we always have interest in pieces dealing with what I call literature on the Middle East. We're one of the few places where people who are specialized in literature uh, of the Middle East, novels and films, uh, even can really publish scholarly examinations of this uh, type of literature. We're one of the very first journals that published uh, what is now known as Islamic feminism. And at the time when we first brought it out, people said, many people criticized us, saying one couldn't be a Muslim and be a feminine. And my point of view was, you know, it's not for me to judge what a woman wants to call herself, if she's a feminist, whether she wants to be a secular feminist or a Muslim feminist or a Christian or a Jewish or a Buddhist. That's her right, and it's not for me to question. And if she's basically writing something fascinating that should be there. And so we became one of the very first journals to really publish articles. And we started getting lots of articles by women who identified themselves as Islamic feminists. And I would say for about 10 years or maybe less, slightly less, people just didn't want to accept that. But now, now it's quite accepted that, yeah, there are such things as Islamic feminists in the world. And they're very articulate. And, uh, uh, and uh, so I'm glad that we were able to contribute to that. We were also one of the first journals to really publish uh, very critical articles about the war on terrorism, which, which ideologically I thought was, uh, was uh, very damaging and uh, really was uh, based on presenting uh, the Middle East and Muslims in particular as another and, and uh, engendered a, a very, what I call very vicious and negative uh, forms of uh, talking about Muslims in the public space in the United States where where some politicians feel it's legitimate to mock Islam. And recently we had this case where someone wanted to burn the Bible, uh, the Quran. And so we were one of the first to try to understand uh, what is wrong with this way of thinking. Uh, uh, which uh, I have no problem saying is racist. You see this other person uh, whose who's beliefs are different, and you use that as a way of, of uh, uh, de developing negative policies towards them. So there are a number of... Yeah, much to the surprise of the American public, there was very few people who were following that individual that you're talking about who did this um, ridiculous kind of stunt uh, several months ago. Um, in your current journal, the latest publication, you have 15 pages of an article 
entitled Iranian Women's Increasing Access to Higher Education but Limited Participating in the Job Market. What kind of reception are you getting with that article? Uh, that's an article by Goli Rezaei Rashti. She's an Iranian uh, who does research in Iran, but she actually lives in Canada, where she is on the faculty of Western Ontario University. She is one of the lead gender scholars in the world. Uh, she's done a lot of pioneering research. That particular one was her interviews with educated women in Iran, Iran, colleges in Iran, something like 65% of all students are female. They, for at least 10 years now, the number of women in all of Iran's several hundred colleges outnumber the males, and they're in every profession. Uh, but uh, many of them complain about uh, the inability to get jobs. Now, this is also true of males. Iran wants to go to college, uh, Iran's economy, because uh, of factors such as the U.S. the U.S. sanctions that have been on Iran for 30 years now, but also recent U.N. sanctions have uh, had a negative effect on the ability of Iran's uh, job market to produce uh, jobs and and when you and, and, the, and what she argues in that article is when there is a uh, a tight job market, the employers will, for various reasons, prefer men to employ men over women because they're afraid women may leave to get married or after they get married have children. Uh, and she tries to examine a number of of factors which contribute why. Educated women, uh, the unemployment rate among educated women uh, is about 30, I think she said 30, 34%, which is, uh, although even among educated men, it's fairly high, 20%. Uh, Iran, to be, is really in the past several years, has not generated enough what you might call professional jobs for people with uh, education. So you have a situation for each every professional job. You may have 20 applicants, but in contrast, it does have a, a lot of uh, low skills, unprofessional for every one of these, what you might call unskilled jobs. You have maybe uh, eight applicants for every 20 jobs. Okay, Dr. Eric Hoagland, you're in the psychologist chair. Thank you very much for being with us. We're going to be back in a few minutes, and we want to talk about such articles in your journal, Middle East Critique. Does it actually help, or could it cause some political problems? I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden in the psychologist chair. We'll be back with Dr. Eric Hoagland in just a moment. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Women who are interested in making it a priority in their lives to have a strong financial foundation from which to live, listen up. You'll want to tune in to the My Money Place radio program hosted by Susan Stalteri. You'll learn more about how to make, save, and spend money as well as the mindset and personal growth topics designed to help you be a strong and independent financial decision maker. If money talk has always frightened you or just made you a little bit apprehensive, tune in to My Money Place, airing live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. News. 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 News
Can you hear me? Hear me? Your voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to In the Psychologist Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info at inthepsychologistchair.info. That email address again is info at inthepsychologistchair.info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden in the Psychologist Chair today. We have Dr. Eric Hoagland from the University of Lund, who is a senior professor there in Sweden, an American born in the state of Maine. He now has completed several decades of wonderful works as he promotes understanding between East and West. Middle East Critique is one of his many publications. This is the one where he currently edits. And it is a publication that is done by Taylor and Francis. Dr. Eric, welcome back to the show. I want to ask you about articles like Iranian Women's Increased Access to Higher Education, but limited participation in the job market. And just briefly, because we have other things we want to talk about, too, how does this impact Iran? Well, the research is very similar, of course, to what the Iranians themselves are doing. Uh, One can do research on these topics. There's lots of articles, even more articles in Iran dealing with these same issues. It's not as if uh, Iranians don't know that, and this is one of the big topics in Iran. It's even debated in the Iranian parliament that uh, what, uh, you know, the the job situation. And so in many ways, uh, what what we're doing is just paralleling the research which is being done by Iranians. And one of the things I do with critique is we try to privilege our research actually coming from scholars in the countries, Iran, uh, Turkey, uh, the Emirates. Uh, there's There's actually, and speaking of the Emirates, there's a very interesting a new group called Women for Sustainable Growth, uh, which has uh, really got a lot of support from women entrepreneurs in the Emirates, and we're hoping that we're going to have an article dealing with this particular group, which uh, which has uh, got a lot of involvement by native. They're all native Emirati women who are who uh, have their own businesses, and and we're hoping to have an article really examining uh, this trend, this very interesting trend in the Emirates. Uh, well, we'll so we'll certainly look into all those articles with your publication. There's another piece that was written in the current issue of Middle East Critique about Walid Jamblat, political alliances, the politics of adaptation. Tell us a little bit about that as we move into Lebanon now, which is part of the Levant Middle Eastern segment. Well, this is uh, what I call another one of our pioneering studies. There have been very little, very few uh, studies done about uh, important uh, leaders, uh, political leaders who've had an impact on their country's society. In the case of Walid Jimblat, he inherited not just the called leadership of the Druze community, and that's a religious group in Lebanon. Uh, uh, they they may be they're the third or fourth largest, it depends on who you talk to, uh, but, it, but it is an influential community uh, in a state where uh, everyone has to have an identity, a religious identity, by law, whether they want it or not. And when you're born, you're given the religious identity of your grandparents, uh, uh, and so there are 18 officially recognized religious communities in Lebanon, and the Druze is one of the larger one of these. Uh, and the larger religious communities have clout, uh, political clout. And so the Druze community under Walid Jimblat, uh has been, and what this article does is show how he has been trying to, since the over the last 30 years, has been trying to uh, position himself uh, with uh, on issues to be aligned with different groups in a way, different communities in Lebanon, in a way which would always, from his point of view, benefit 
the status of the Druze community have not a negative impact on on uh, those government policies wouldn't impact ne- negatively on on him. And in the case, in, in, in this article also shows that in a case like Lebanon, where there's so much foreign intervention. And uh, some people like to talk about the Syrian intervention. That's just one of them. Obviously, the Israeli intervention has been very crucial. Israel, in fact, invaded Lebanon in 72 and it bombs it just recently in 2006. Or was it even later than that? Uh, so and so, there's been all kinds of for, continuous foreign intervention, and, and you know this affects the way politics are conducted in Lebanon. And this article really is really masterful in in using the writings of uh, Walid Blatt in in various papers. Uh, uh, How was the writer able to access those writings? They're published. They're published. Okay, That's these are I mean, published writings Arabic, of religion. Yeah, in Arabic in various newspapers in Lebanon. And so he was so he, he makes the argument and the consistency in in the arguments that he makes. I mean he has his own news the 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 party he belongs to, the Progressive Socialists, uh, has their own newspaper. Plus, he publishes articles in various national newspapers in in, Le- in Lebanon. So he's so the uh, scholar here in this case, who's a teacher in who's a professor in Lebanon, is looking at how consistent his views are over a 30-year period on specific issues, such as relationships with the Sunni or the Shia or the Maronites or with Syria, for example, and how they change. Yeah, in 1983, uh, Dr. Nicholas Kittry wrote an article entitled, Side with the Druze, You Cannot Lose. This was one year after Israel's invasion into Lebanon, which was June the 6th, 1982. Now, interesting, Dr. Kittry's document of the siding with Druze, You Cannot Lose, was actually for Israel, showing that the Druze unity serves quite a great impact. In this article by your author for your journal about Walijan Blot, who is adaptable with his politics, not just dancing around, not knowing where to sleep and with who the next day politically, is that the same kind of alliance that we're seeing where Druze unity plays a significant role in Lebanon? Well, all of the religious communities uh, are both have some cohesive unity because of the way that all the political offices and all the money is distributed uh, on religious basis. They're they're legally recognized. At the same time, the larger communities, this would be the the four largest, the Druze, the Maronites, the Shia, and the Sunni, uh, are also internally divided. Uh, and so they're not unified, they're not cohesive, uh, and they certainly are opponents to Elijah Blot, and that comes out w- within the Druze community, and that comes out uh, in the article here uh, uh, that you mentioned. Uh, but that's true of the Maronites, it's true of the Shia. Uh, they, they are these different blocks and factions as people, but that's politics. Politics is always about people with big egos trying, and it doesn't matter if it's in Lebanon or Israel or the United States, I would argue, you're always going to have these types of factions. So, and the other thing about the Jews, of course, as a party, it is not friendly to Israel. It's always been uh, pro-Palestinian. It's always been, and this is in 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 Lebanon, of course. And I think the the author of that article was looking at the Jews in in Israel, which is which the is which the Israelis consider more loyal than the other Arab people in who are their citizens, but it was just the opposite. The Druze would not collaborate in any way with the Israelis uh, in '82, or the Druze in 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 uh, in, in uh, Lebanon would not collaborate in any way. And it's also true of the Druze in Syria, which also has a Druze uh, minority. The two articles that we've been talking about so far has to do with Iranian women, as well as Willijim Blot and an adaptable position with his political alliances. Two different kinds of articles in one journal, the Middle East Critique. Uh, Dr. Hoagland, you've done a great job in bringing on a lot of different forms of understanding for this forum. How can people access Middle East Critique? 
Well, uh, many libraries have subscriptions, uh, and therefore you can uh, access at a library because now what libraries have are what they call electronic subscriptions. Uh, so you can uh, read anything online. One can actually get a subscription themselves if they wanted to. But scholarly journals, unfortunately, tend to be expensive, but I think they're worth it. Uh, and uh, uh, and one can uh, get subscriptions directly from uh, Middle East Critique and Care of uh, Taylor and Francis, whose offices are in Abingdon, which is a little town outside of Oxford in the UK. Great. Now, there's other articles that are posed in this latest journal, and this journal has been existing since 1992, and you were one of the original people that that set that up, even while you were in the United States. Now you're with one of the Swedish universities as a senior professor. What do you see is the future of the Middle East now that a person who's been identified as the world's most hostile terrorist, Osama bin Laden, has been assassinated? Uh, I don't know how relevant that's going to be uh, in terms of Middle East politics because he has been out of it. Uh, I should say that, uh, you know, I get up early in the morning here and so uh, to get ready for school, and I usually turn on the news. And so that Monday morning, uh, which was still midnight, uh, even not even midnight in the uh, U.S., uh, Obama was on, and then they showed the scenes of all the people at the White House that is spontaneously see, clap and cheer, and I personally, as American, was appalled to see that. I was embarrassed and ashamed that anyone would clap at the uh, that someone else had died. Uh, I, 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 I could not believe that. Uh, I don't think that was the best image that one could be sending abroad. Uh, having said that, I don't think oh, uh, uh, that uh, that Bin Laden, by the time, I mean, he has not been, he's certainly been relevant to U.S. policy, but I don't think he's been relevant to any of the, in a major way, obviously, groups allied to Al-Qaeda have been carrying out assassinations in the Muslim world. I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden. You're in the Psychologist's Chair with Dr. Eric Hoagland. We'll be back in a moment. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Go inside the world of PR with PR Insider, hosted by public relations expert Maureen Kettis. Maureen will speak to the world's highest profile PR pros from the fields of marketing, advertising, and sales. And PR Insider will feature renowned members of the media as special guests. Maureen will give you a VIP access pass, including tips and tricks to take your business to the next level. PR Insider with Maureen Kettis, sponsored by Cision, us.cision.com. Listen every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Network. Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. On America's front lines of crime and war with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune in to On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to In the Psychologist Chair with Dr. Raymond Hamden and his featured guests. We'd love to hear from you via email at info at inthepsychologistchair.info. That email address again is info at inthepsychologistchair.info. Now, back to Dr. Raymond Hamden. 
I'm Dr. Raymond Hamden. You're in the psychologist chair. Today with Dr. Eric Hoagland, our last segment of the show. Dr. Hoagland is from Waterville, Maine, and is currently living in Sweden as a senior professor. He is also the editor of Middle East Critique, which promotes an academic and critical examination of history and contemporary politics, social, economic, and cultural aspects of the Middle East countries. Dr. Hoagland, many wonderful articles are being published. You certainly have grounded what would be called peer-reviewed article. No one could ever argue that. And you're doing these in not only theoretical but also empirical studies that promotes a critical understanding of the complex nature of ideas, values, and social configurations of the Middle East societies. What is the message that people of the West need to know about the Middle East in particular? That the people there are like everyone else in the West. They have the same aspirations for their children to get good educations, to get good jobs. Uh, many of them aspire to have the uh, very same consumer societies. Uh, they're not in. Most of them are not into fanaticism of any type. Uh, uh, they uh, are just. Uh, like us, I really don't see the differences between human beings. I think one of the unfortunate things since September 11, uh, 2001, has has been that the advocates of this clash of civilization uh, got some new life. And, uh, I don't think they were taken very seriously before then, but they certainly have been, and the consequences have been disastrous. Uh, the the wars we've carried out in uh, in Afghanistan, and even more in Iraq, and the thousands of innocent civilians who have died as a result of that, plus uh, what Israel's been able to do in the West Bank and Gaza, the Palestinian territories it occupies since 2001. So I, I, I would like to think that that uh, one of the things that people like me want to do is to sensitize people to, to what is going on so that we can... Uh, uh, Stop some of this uh, very ugly barbarianism, which is uh, coming from the West into the East. When you got your doctorate's degree in international relations, Middle East studies, from Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, what year was that that you got your doctorate's degree? 1975. And what changes do you think are happening academically at organizations like the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins, that are much different today. Do you see an advancement in understanding, in teaching? No, no. When I was there, I had the great opportunity to be there when Majid Khadouri was the director of the Middle East program. He is one of the great scholars of Islamic law of the 20th century. And I believe he's still alive, but he's in his late 90s. Uh, and I haven't seen him for about five years, but he was still alive five years ago. Uh, uh, and he really made us uh, read uh, texts in Islamic law, including uh, uh, personal status law, commercial law, the law of nations, as well as get a good grounding. Uh, and uh, in general Middle East studies, we had to do things, sociology, anthropology, politics, uh, plus know the language. And I think that has been very positive. One of the unfortunate things, again, of this war on terrorism, that much of academia uh, uh, wants too much to reflect uh, the views of the government of the day because this is where they get research money. Uh, and... Uh, and people like me who really believe that it's the duty of the intellectual to speak truth to power, uh, there are many of us out there, but there are not enough of us. Uh, uh, fortunately, I'm not the only one, and I'm not even the most articulate, but certainly people of my generation were heavily influenced by the late Edward Said, who really uh, advocated that we have to speak truth to power, uh, and that we have to see the rest of the world as being like us, uh, that they that uh, we don't set 
someone up as an other because we don't like their their religion, whether it's a religion like Islam or a secular religion like Marxism or, or secularism or whatever else one can think of, that, uh, that being uh, – someone who, that if we really believe in scholarship, if we believe in democracy, we have to be tolerant and understanding of the diverse views that people have and respect them. Uh, and I don't, uh, certainly in American academia, there are many scholars who understand that, but uh, usually the mainstream media pays attention to those who uh really don't have such an understanding and want to reduce the world into very simplistic, what they call national security terms, and see everything, everyone or everyone that they don't understand as somehow of a national security threat. Uh, and I think psychologically that is not very healthy for the United States. And my hope is that we can get away from that uh, and maybe... Uh, Maybe if there's anything positive that comes out of the uh, assassination of Osama bin Laden, uh, the U.S. will begin to rethink its policies. And uh, maybe instead of having all these military interventions in the Middle East, really do something like have uh, encourage ideas uh, uh, of tolerance and uh, understanding and economic aid and assistance and mutual development. The United States, being a democratic nation, does allow for lobby systems to influence government policies. And it not becomes a part of who's right or who's wrong. It becomes a political factor that's influenced by strong economics. Is that kind of what you're saying then? Well, a lobby system, I think, is undermines democracy. So I wouldn't say it's part of a democratic system. It undermines democracy because what we have with a lobby system is all by money. And it's all legal to give this money. So whether, whether it's legal or illegal to give money, in this case it's legal, it's corruption. It's bribery. And uh, a person like me who doesn't, could, who doesn't have the money to give can no longer have the access to political leaders that I automatically could have in the late 60s when I went to Washington uh, where this was not true, that senators would meet with and representatives meet with anyone. And now they only meet with people who bring checks. Uh, we talk about corruption in other countries and because this type of corruption, and this is what it is, uh, is legal. We don't, we don't call it corruption in America. And yeah, I think that this whole system undermines democracy very fundamentally. And it's something that we don't even have a debate on in the United States and we need uh, because it's going to hurt our our country in the future if this continues. And so I'm one of the advocates that we really have to have an overhaul of politics in the country and the money that goes into it. Uh, but I don't see that coming right now. Dr. Eric Hoagland, Ph.D., International Relations, Middle East Studies, a graduate of Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, received his doctorate's degree, an earned degree in 1975. Today, he's with University of Lund as a senior professor. Done a great job, Dr. Eric. Thank you very much for all the information, and we're looking forward to reading more wonderful pieces that are being published in Middle East Critique. Thanks. We look forward to having you back on the show. And whenever you're visiting in the United States and the Middle East, we hope to actually have a chance to meet and have you in the psychologist chair again. Thank you again for joining us this week for In the Psychologist Chair. Please join Dr. Raymond Hamden for another edition next Tuesday at 9 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we speak again, hope you enjoy your week.